0: Here's your host, Sakar Cowley.
1: Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Today, I'm honored to welcome Greg Dickerson with Dickerson International. Uh, Welcome to the show, Greg. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Awesome. Greg is a serial entrepreneur and a real estate developer, a coach, and a mentor for several students. Uh, He has bought, developed, and sold well over $250 million of real estate. And he has built and renovated hundreds of custom homes and commercial buildings uh, and have done uh, some of the mixed-use residential subdivisions as well. He has started uh, 12 different companies from ground up Greg coaches and mentors uh, some of the top entrepreneurs and real estate investors uh, in the country right now. Uh, Along with his clients, Greg uh, has over $2 billion uh, asset under management and several other deals in the process. So it is an incredible, um, uh, you know, resume, uh, Greg, and I'm looking forward to hearing about your education and also all of your experience as well. So I appreciate you taking time today.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you having me here. And yeah, that's, you know, a, a short way of, you know, talking about adult ADD, right? So
1: <laughs> No, awesome. I mean, uh, sometimes, you know, it's such a, I mean, with your experience, Greg, uh, you know, it's hard to condense how many things you would have done. So help us get started with your bio and maybe we can, uh, you know, yeah. join the discussion. Forever. And that's, you know, that's just my entrepreneurial career. So
2: that sure. started in 1997. Prior to that, you know, I was in the Navy. I went in the Navy right out of high school, did not go to college. Uh, got out of the Navy, worked in the corporate world for a while. So I worked in the restaurant industry and uh, got some really good business training there. And then always had an interest in construction. And, you know, I was working in a restaurant there was a guy building addition on the restaurant um, and he hired me uh, to come clean up after him. So that's where I kind of learned construction and got into that. I really liked, you know, mm-hmm. the commercial construction aspect. So I would manage restaurants at night and I'd go work to work for him during the day in construction. So I kind of always had a little side business in construction while I was working in restaurants. And in 1997, I moved to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. You and I are on the East coast. I'm in Charlottesville. You're in Maryland. So a lot of people from Maryland, DC, you know, Charlottesville, Virginia go down to the Outer Banks. That's a summer resort destination off the coast of North Carolina where the Wright brothers took off in Kitty Hawk. So anyways, I moved there in 97 to open some restaurants and I got into uh, construction instead and built everything from there. Uh, know from a little remodeling handyman company to a 30 million dollar building company and built it up sold it off reinvested the profits and and you know developed all these other things along the way and then switched to full-time developer from basically after 2009 well i sold my company in 0405 kind of switched to the developer role then and then more specifically 09 you know when everything changed i didn't build anymore i was doing full-on developing and outsourcing my building to other contractors but Mm -hmm. you know it's really interesting I was on a podcast earlier today, uh, before this one, and and we were kind of talking about the the equity capital side, the you know starting companies and exiting them. That's where I really started. I really started as a as a business builder, um, and I took all the cash flow from that and reinvested in in other assets uh, because I read Rich Dad Poor Dad, right? So sure. that was the first book I read that kind of opened my mind to business. And it's really funny. A lot of people get real estate out of that book. What I got was the other side. I got the business side out of the book because what I looked at, I didn't look at what Robert was doing or what he was teaching. I looked at Rich Dad, his Rich Dad, and what he was doing and what Robert was going to him for. So if you remember the book, have you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad? I have. Absolutely. <laughs> so in the book, Robert Kiyosaki talked about going into his rich dad's office and, you know, all these people were coming and going. He was directing all these different businesses, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's who I want to be. I don't want right. to be rich. I don't want to be Robert Kiyosaki. I right. want to be rich dad. Sure. So mm-hmm. that's what I did. I went out and started building and buying companies to create cash flow so that I could then invest in the other assets. It just so happened that, you know, my biggest main company was the building company that I built and scaled and sold. And then, you know, I developed those other skills along the way in terms of development. So, you know, that's me in a nutshell. I started on the business side first as an equity capital guy Mm -hmm. and then parlayed into real estate investing and development as I went along.
1: Absolutely. And it's very interesting, the new construction, uh, the real estate, especially the commercial real estate is so much so tied to, uh, you know, a lot of the business concept and the lot of uh, systems related things that we always refer to, you know, that's mm-hmm. a, always a nice, uh, uh, you know, thing to learn that real estate leads to sort of the personal development, how you can improve, uh, you know, all of your operations and things like that. So I have always enjoyed that component, you know? Uh, so Greg, uh, as experienced as you are, uh, you have done, you know, multifamily, you are big into, uh, you know, sort of the co- commercial ground up new de- developments as well. Can you maybe share your sentiments, uh, Greg, about how you evaluate markets and perhaps how you kind of take on the new deals that come along uh, to you through your desk?
2: Yeah. So I don't look at markets. I look at the deal. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm market market agnostic. Sure. If it's a mm-hmm. good deal, it's a mm-hmm. good deal. Okay. Sure. Now, If it's a good deal then i kind of look at the ancillary things around it but you know market analysis is very simple you need one thing and one thing only you need net migration positive net migration so there's Mm -hmm. more people moving in than moving out everything else is going to align sure so Mm -hmm. that's really you could really break it down that simple and then a lot of people get really scientific about it look at all the different you know income growth job growth this that and the other but at the end of the day if you have positive net migration everything else is going to fall in the line sure and if you look mm-hmm. at the top demographics right now the most sought after markets you're talking about the southeast you sure. know, florida texas uh, some alabama you know some mississippi uh, arizona uh, you know colorado those types of areas and that's where everybody's going
3: sure so mm-hmm.
2: where is everybody leaving new york california you know the northeast sure uh, especially mm-hmm. right now with you know we're in the we're still in the coronavirus pandemic this is july of 2020 So everything is in that context. So when I look at markets, um, I will stay away from certain markets, even if it's a good deal, because of certain things like California, New York, rent controls, you know, all of the tenant friendly laws that are in process and they're getting Mm -hmm. ready to be passed, especially right now. So I really don't want to be in those markets. But in general, I look at the deal first and then market is secondary.
1: I see. I see. Or does uh, like, let's say the primary market or, you know, like the sub market as we call it, or perhaps let's say if it's a city core and Mm you're perhaps maybe going to suburbs, maybe 20 miles out, uh, 50 miles out, things like that. How how do you kind of, um, you know, let's say as the uh, asset uh, or the deal comes to you, Greg, uh, do you maybe consider that, okay, this is maybe perhaps 20 miles away from the, uh, you know, sort of the urban core. Uh, or it is, you know, maybe 35, 40 miles. Do you consider some of that population density or uh, perhaps some of the, uh, you know, the driving distances and things like that? Does any of that um, uh, sort of come into play when you're taking on new construction projects?
2: Oh, absolutely. So, you know, when you're ter- determining highest and best use, you've got to look at what's the population, what's the demand, what's the mm-hmm. demographic. Sure. And where is it? And, you know, so I'll qualify the good deal. It can It can be a great deal in the wrong spot.
3: Sure. So I'll mm-hmm.
2: I'll look at some of those, you know, demographics and information around it. And, mm-hmm. you know, for instance, you don't want to try to build, um you know, a movie theater that is outside of the city center in some rural demographic where you've only got a couple thousand people or maybe even 10,000 people, right?
3: Sure. Mm-hmm. So,
2: you know, things like that. Or you don't want to build a hotel where nobody's going. So you got to have sure. the demand drivers, the population, things like that. But absolutely, I, I do take a look at those things. And, and that's first and foremost when it comes to development and even you know any deal that you're going to do really you want to make sure that the use is appropriate for the demographic
1: got it got it now uh greg uh, give us some sort of step by step a few major things that go on Uh, When you're developing the projects and I'm interested to know like, you know, obviously going from uh, You know sort of land entitlements to uh, you know You're looking at the construction plans the community hearings and things like that and uh, Also, especially, you know, how you handle the financing end of it. Can you maybe elaborate at a high level some of the uh, You know sort of the major uh, checkpoints uh, in a new construction process that you go through?
2: Yeah so first and foremost is zoning. Is the property zoned for the use that you're looking for? And is there demand and mm-hmm. demand drivers for that use? Um, and you can be 20, 30, 50 miles outside of a major urban core if there's sufficient um, documentation and evidence that that demographic and population is going to grow and become a bedroom community of the major demographic. Hence the Baltimore, Maryland surrounding areas, D.C. surrounding areas. You can be 30, 50 miles outside of D.C. and still be red hot. So, uh, Atlanta, you know, your major city center. So, first thing you look at is, you know, proximity, uh, you look at zoning, and then you look at the environment around the zoning. So, even though it's zoned, is it a pro-development environment? And what is your, you know, what's your opposition to development going to be? Mm -hmm. You know, because development is a a very highly opposed thing in a lot of areas.
3: Sure. Um, Mm -hmm.
2: You know, people don't like progress. They don't like development. They don't like land getting disturbed, right? So, you got to understand those rules. So once you understand all that and and, and it looks like, okay, well, we're zoned and we can do what we want to do and it's going to work and the numbers work, you know, I put together a real quick, you know, financial feasibility uh, to make sure that the numbers overall are going to work and you just start Mm -hmm. with the end value, whether it's a, uh, you know, apartment complex, you're going to have an income, you you use your operating assumptions, you get a net operating income, you know, it's going to be worth X. So, you know, it's going to cost X to build it and they're asking X for the land. So, is that going to work? So, that's a quick mm-hmm. financial feasibility. If it's a for sale product, same thing. What's it going to be worth at the end of the day? Then you reverse your numbers. What does it cost me to build it? What's my margin? Uh, what is the land cost? What's the development cost? And then, you know, is it going to work? So, yeah. you start with mm-hmm. those things first. And if all that looks good, then you go to the next level.
3: Mm-hmm. The
2: next level is what is the topography of the land? What does it look like?
3: Mm-hmm. You know, is
2: there any environmental concerns? Are there any utility encroachments, railroad tracks? You know, what does the access look like? What what are the utilities serving the property? What's it going to take to get it there? So you kind of start looking at those things. And that's just phone calls and information and understanding where to look uh, to find out what that all uh, is about, what it entails, what it's going to cost to rectify any of those situations if there are issues. Um, you know, then once you have that, then you move to your LOI stage. And for me as a developer, I never buy land until I get all my entitlements, improvements and permits. And I tie the purchase price to that. So if I'm looking at a parcel and I can get 500 units, Mm -hmm. then I'm going to tie my purchase price to being able to get the approvals, contract, closing, and purchase price to being able to get the approvals for 500 units. And if it comes in lower than that, we're going to adjust the purchase price down Mm -hmm. um, to that. And I don't close until I get all of my permits all the way down to the building permit to build that project. Then I close on the land. So um, I tie land up for almost nothing in a lot of cases for the initial first 45 to 60 days of feasibility. Mm-hmm. And once I decide I'm moving forward, I'll put up an earnest money deposit. And then that's it until we get, uh, we get all our approvals and then we close. And that could be a year, it could be two years. You know, it just depends on the market. Some areas, it could be three or four years. just depends on what it is you're doing. Right, uh, right, so right. Once we've done that and we've moved through the entitlement process, which now you've got to get your surveyors and your engineers and, you know, you start designing the site first. And the goal mm-hmm. is to maximize the site, bring the highest and best value to the site you're moving through that process of the simultaneously getting all your approvals and going through those hurdles all of your traffic studies and environmental impacts and water quality and soils and erosion control plans and you're just doing all that stuff um you know you're working all those while you're doing that you've established let's say it's a building what your footprint looks like then you can start your architecturals once you kind of have a good idea of what your footprint's going to look like <laughs> so a lot of people take a building and try to make it fit the land you got to take the land and then design the building to fit what you can do in terms of the footprint of the land. Sure. And that's where like people ask, well, when you do a multifamily development, why is there so many buildings or how many units per building do you do? And really it boils down to the land the, the topography and what makes the most sense. You want to try to put as many units under one roof with one foundation as you can, but sometimes you can't. You have to fragment those buildings sure. depending mm-hmm. on parking requirements, access, you know, all those types of things. Um, you know, fire department access, you know, all that, all that stuff has to come into play. uh, Department of Transportation requirements, you know, all that. So those are all the things that you work through the process. While you're working that, you're lining up your finances. So you're financing typical construction debt that's going to come from a, you know, a bridge lender or a local regional bank Mm
3: -hmm.
2: um, at the very high level. I mean, local and regional banks, you know, will come together and do $50, $100 million construction loan projects. So typically those are going to go through traditional banks, then there are conduit lenders, bridge lenders that, are, you know, basically are hard money for commercial multifamily um, that lend money on those things. That goes through a mortgage lender, you know, broker who's going to originate that debt for you. So you could be working that process um, or it could come from like a family office or an equity fund that, you know, invests in those types of things. So there's a lot of different ways to fund construction, but for me, it's mostly been traditional bank debt.
3: Mm-hmm. And,
2: um, and especially uh, with the the bigger projects, you know, banks are a much cheaper form of capital than than any other any mm-hmm. other type of capital. So you start working that through, and you know they're going to have an equity requirement. In other words, they're going to want you to put cash in the deal. So you're either using your own cash, which I've done primarily in my career, or you have investors and you raise capital and you do that thing. So mm-hmm. I do both. You know, I've used a lot of my own cash during my career to do my own deals because you got to do something with your cash. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then I have a handful of investors that I've worked with over the years. So, you know, our, our capital is literally unlimited. We can raise as much as we need to raise with a couple of phone calls to do a project, mm-hmm. uh, if it makes sense. And, um, uh, you know, so that's basically how the process proceeds. And you know, as you move to the loan closing, you know, all the checks, all the boxes are checked and everything looks good. Then you take the land down, uh, and then you break ground, you start construction. And, uh, as you're building the building and things are progressing, Um, you start the lease up project, so that's where you hire me. I hire a management company, they come in, whether it's commercial, multifamily, whatever it is. I always use third party management, Mm -hmm. and they come in and they start marketing the property. If we can, if it's commercial, you know, office, retail, whatever you want to pre lease as much as you can before you ever start, so you can start getting some commitments on the residential side. You really can't do that till you start breaking ground and something's coming out. People know there's going to be a place to live,
0: right? Because Mm -hmm.
2: you know, residential. You know, they don't have as long of an outlook as, you know, commercial and office, you know, can sometimes. So once you get to a point to where, you know, you're within six months of a CEO, then you really want to start taking applications and start really getting ready to ramp up your, your lease up when the Lisa. department is done. Got it. So that's a high level of how that process works.
1: I know. I mean, uh, it's it's interesting. I mean, we can obviously spend a whole podcast on the details as well. I mean, I appreciate uh, sharing the detail there, Mm -hmm. uh, Greg. Now, uh, a couple of small questions within that, uh, Greg. Uh, Can you maybe clarify the initial piece where you said uh, how you are taking the land uh, under contract and how you handle the earnest money deposit. And, uh, you know, you stated that uh, you do not close till you get the actual permit uh, for the number of units that, uh, you know, you you initially thought. Can you maybe uh, sort of, uh, you know, go into a little bit detail there?
2: Yeah, yeah. So that's developer 101. You never take down your land till you get your approvals. So, uh, the LOI um, and contract. So, LOI is just clarification of terms. Once we agree sure. on terms, we go to contract. So, all of my contracts are structured where I have a minimum, depending on the project, of 45 to 90 days for that initial uh, feasibility. So, that's mm-hmm. where I'm going to determine. I don't even put any money up for that. I don't even put mm-hmm. a deposit up. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a contract that I have, you know, contractual rights to the property, and I don't put any earnest money up until I get through 45 to 90 days. Of my initial feasibility to determine what can I do? Is it going to get approved? And how much is it going to cost? and Is it going to make money? Mm -hmm. So I do all that in 45 to 90 days. Mm -hmm. And once I decide, yes, it works, then we put the earnest money deposit up. So the contract is going to call for, you know, I'm paying a million dollars for the land. Um, I know I can get 100 units or, you know, I think I can get 100 units. That's, you know, $10,000 a unit. So uh, the contract says if, I, if my density is reduced for any reason, mm-hmm. the contract gets reduced, contract price gets reduced at closing by that amount. Sure. So if mm-hmm. it's $10,000 a door, then I only get 90 instead of 100, I reduce it $10,000 at closing. Sure. So that's mm-hmm. how I, you know, that's all part of the LOI negotiation. So you write that in the contract. Um, and then once I cross that first hurdle uh, of financial or uh, feasibility study period, then there's gonna be an earnest money deposit due, usually around you know, one to five percent, depending on the price of the land. Sure. You know, maybe ten percent if you have a you know really hot piece of land.
3: Mm-hmm. So I'll
2: put that refundable earnest money deposit up
3: mm-hmm. that
2: yeah. if for some reason that project does not get approved, or if I get downzoned, meaning at any point during the process, if the property gets downzoned for much, much less density, that's even gonna make sense financially to where even a purchase price adjustment doesn't make sense um you know which a lot of times it won't then i have the ability to walk and get the earnest money back so that's mm-hmm. kind of how that works
1: i see thank you for that uh detail now uh greg you are expert into uh you know repositioning companies and taking over maybe perhaps distress uh uh you know sort of the companies and kind of turning them over into profitable companies as well uh can you maybe describe uh, you know how what that process looks like what are the important elements when you are uh, looking at uh, some of the distress uh, uh, you know companies
2: yeah so it's really interesting it's a lot like real estate right so when you're Mm -hmm. looking at a business you want to understand who's your customer who's your market um, what are the economics of the deal Mm -hmm. so not only economics of the company as a whole what's the income what's the expenses what are the opportunities to grow, scale, and expand, and what's the market out there for that, what's it gonna take, but also unit economics. So if it's Mm a uh, brick and mortar business, you're gonna have a uh, facility, whether it's a leasehold business like restaurants or retail or something like that, you're gonna have certain unit economics. In other words, how many dollars per square foot does that business generate, right? So you start looking at all your KPIs and all your metrics of the business, and then understand is there growth potential and businesses trade on a multiple of their Net operating income to a real estate uh, deal is EBITDA to a business earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and uh, depreciation and amortization. So that's like an NOI for real estate. So at the end of the day, what you want to look at is what's the EBITDA of the company? What is it generating? What is the multiple average for the industry at acquisition at the level it's at? Once you build it up to a certain level, and there's exponential benchmarks for companies in terms of number of locations, number of businesses, if you're you know rolling up fragmented you know businesses like a dental practice and you buy a bunch of dental practices or mm-hmm. you know veterinary clinics or restaurants or whatever it is, as you get a certain number of businesses into that portfolio, the value of it grows exponentially. When it comes to a general business like manufacturing or software or something like that, software could be number of users to where exponentially over a certain amount that the multiple goes up exponentially so let's say you have a million users on a platform the multiple might be 10x once you hit 10 million the multiple might be 15 or 20x
3: mm-hmm, for the same
2: mm-hmm. product you see what i'm saying mm-hmm, so sure. same thing in like a manufacturing company once you you know let's say at 10 million you might have a 5x multiple but once you hit 100 million you might have a you know 15x multiple
3: mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. just
2: because you're at that volume level sure, sure.
3: and then
2: there's then then you look at driving you know to the bottom line enhancing the EBITDA so if it's an owner-operated business maybe they've been running some you know, things through the company, instead of reporting it as income, they've just been offsetting. So you want to boost that EBITDA, boost that income, just like in a real estate deal, it's Mm -hmm. all about the net operating income. So the more you show on the bottom line, the more it's worth. So kind of the same process, you look Mm -hmm. at the market, geographically, as well as economically, you know, what's the market for the product and business, Mm -hmm. as well as what market is it in? And what's the growth and, and you know, how are you going to be able to increase the value of the company?
1: Good. Th- thank you for that detail, uh, Greg. Now, uh, we're in an interesting time, uh, Greg, mm-hmm. where obviously a lot of businesses are kind of being Amazoned, uh, you know, uh, kind of almost getting competed and bid out by, you know, a lot of online retailers now. How do you, uh, you know, kind of take into effect the effects of competition and what that can do to that business? Can you maybe share some uh, uh, thoughts about that?
2: Yeah. So it's, it's a very different environment when it comes to competition and where it's going to come from. So not only do you need to look at, you know, Amazon proof, if you're retail or whatever, you need to be able to now anticipate what's coming next. Where is it going next? Like for instance, remote working. So through the pandemic, we've all learned, man, we don't need as much office space as we thought. Sure. We can actually, this actually works, you know, Mm-hmm. Uh, not as good as face to face, but it it works and it can work. Sure. So now that whole environment's changed. Of man, do I even need an office? Do I even need a brick and mortar presence? Um, and your competition's coming in a lot of different areas from a lot of different directions. So you have to really start thinking now when you're looking at business that has been traditionally done, even restaurants that all relied on dine in, you know, versus that takeout option and you know those types of things. You have to really be able to, number one, pivot when the unforeseen happens Mm -hmm. and you've got to be able to position yourself uniquely in the marketplace where, you know, people are going to want to go out of their way to do business with you if there are other more convenient, easier options out there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in order to survive and compete, you have to be uniquely positioned to where people will, they're not going to go to Amazon, they're going to come to you because there's a reason they're going to, you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. you got to think on those levels at every level in every business now. And then if you're going online, then you need to think about, well, how quickly am I going to become obsolete? Mm -hmm. Because once you're out there, everybody else is going to see you and the big players, you know, may or may not compete with you and stamp you out. Some of them might kind of help you grow because they want to buy you because it's easier Mm -hmm. just to let you grow, help you and buy you versus they're trying to fight you. But some might just put you slam out of business. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and do that. So you need to understand, if you're going online, and you're going against the big boys and girls, where do you want to be in that cycle? And how do you position yourself to be on the good side where you're helped, you're bolstered, and you're, you're an acquisition target versus somebody they're just going to stamp out?
1: I see. Now, uh, along the same lines, uh, Greg, um, can you share some thoughts about, um, you know, how you evaluate, uh, like the people and systems and things like that, right? Like, Obviously, in a, uh, in a sort of a struggling business, sometimes you have, uh, you know, inefficient processes or some of the folks are not uh, in uh, correct seats uh, where they should be, as we say it, right? Uh, can you talk about that people and system element uh, and how you kind of uh, look at it and uh, try to, uh, you know, reposition that?
2: Yeah, so businesses are all about people operations process or people operations profit, right? So you got to look at the people first, you know, aces and places. Do you have the right people in the right seat uh, doing the right things? And are they focused on the things that are going to really move the needle forward? What happens a lot of times, you hear the 80 20 rule where, you know, 20% of your results come from 80% of your efforts. Um, What I like to do is drill that down even more. And Mm -hmm. I'll say, okay, well, let's take that 20% and drill that down into the 100% of what drives that 20%. And then you want all of your people focusing on that 100%. So if you've got somebody who you're paying $100,000, $200,000 a year, and they're doing these other things that, are, that could be outsourced or systemized through technology, mm-hmm. okay, and that's keeping them from focusing on 100% of that 20%, mm-hmm. that's where the systemization comes in.
3: So mm-hmm.
2: systemization comes in in terms of where are your weaknesses, where are your repetitive things that can be automated and outsourced. So that your best people can focus on the best things that drive the organization forward exponentially so that's where that all comes in so the first thing you look at when you go into a company to evaluate the leadership is number one do you have leadership Mm -hmm. are is there a leader and are they leader quality okay that's number one number two um what what are the results of that leadership so the cool thing about a business and the cool thing about real estate it's all in the numbers right The numbers don't hide. So if you know how to read the numbers and you understand what the numbers are telling you, because you can make numbers look however you want to make them look, but you got to know the business, you got to know the industry, and you got to know the KPI. So if you know that Mm -hmm. you can look at numbers and know whether they're real or not, Mm -hmm. you know what your unit economics are, you know what your cost should be, you know what your revenue should be. You know, you know what, you know, all these little things should be. So if there's something off, something askew, somebody knows why. So then you got to drill down into what's going on there. So, you know, evaluating leadership, evaluating teams is pretty basic at that level in terms of what does a good leader look like? You know, are, they pro- are they serving their organization? Are they providing leadership from the front, giving everybody everything they need, tools, training systems, and support to be successful? Mm-hmm. More importantly, clear direction. Are they providing that organization with very clear direction and no uncertain terms exactly what's expected and when, and then holding them accountable to that performance, measuring that behavior and holding it accountable to the goal and then providing real-time, up-to-date feedback and direction in order to correct anything that's not happening.
3: Mm -hmm. Um,
2: So those are the types of things that you look at, but really what it boils down to is you should be focusing 100% on the 20% that's gonna drive results. Everything else needs to be outsourced and or systemized through technology.
1: Awesome, great, great advice there, Greg. Thank you for that. If you have any example of a a reposition, Greg, can you maybe share with our listeners, uh, maybe they can benefit from uh, kind of, uh, you know, how you did it or, you know, how you evaluated that? In a business? Sure, in a business is fine. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, so, you know, one of the things I'm working on right now is a, you know, manufacturing operation. And when you go in and look at that, the fundamental, so any business, you've got your, your clients, right? Who are your ideal clients, okay? So the number one thing you look at is who is your best client? So if you're manufacturing products and you have one or two customers that buy the bulk of your goods, they're very easy to work with. They pay you on time. In fact, they'll pay you early for discounts, you know, things like that. They don't Mm -hmm. create problems for you. So the question is, how can I get more of them? So Mm -hmm. the first thing you look at when you're looking at that kind of environment is you go in and you say, okay, if we have one or two or three ideal clients, Or if we have something that's resonating in the marketplace, like I've got a marketing company I'm working with. And, you know, he's kind of been spinning his wheels a little bit in terms of growing and scaling his business. So what we've done there is the same kind of thing. We've kind of refined it and said, look, you don't need to be everything to everybody. You need to be the one thing to this market. You know, very niche, you know, defined, you know, target market that can be anywhere in the country or the world, but it's a certain niche that you're after Mm -hmm. so that you can be seen as the expert for that industry to get the message out for them and help them grow and scale their business and focus on what is the solution you're providing to that company? Same thing in manufacturing. What is it that you're doing that you're providing to that individual, to that company that's so valuable?
3: Mm -hmm. Why
2: are they coming to you for 80% of their business when they could be going elsewhere? So Mm -hmm. really, that's what you wanna look at. When you're looking at a business, if you're a product-driven business, who are your ideal clients? Who's buying the most of what you have to offer? And how can you get more of them, you know, Mm -hmm. um, plumbing. So I had a plumbing company one time and, you know, we looked at the sales of that company and you could be a service-based business where you're doing, you know, hundred dollar tickets, or you could have one or two clients where you're doing a hundred thousand dollars worth of business. So if our goal was to be a $10 million business, well, which way is going to be the easier, fastest way to get there? Right. No, really what's amazing is in any business, doesn't matter whether it's manufacturing a service-based industry like plumbing or if it's a marketing company, you're going to have an ideal client who represents or group of who represent probably the bulk of your income
3: mm-hmm.
1: that are
2: easy to work with and want more of what you have. So how do you get more of them?
1: Mm-hmm. So that's,
2: that's really what that boils down to.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Uh, Now, given the pandemic that we are going through, uh, Greg, and some of the long term pain that's going to come through, what are your thoughts uh, on the uh, sort of the coming six to eight months to a year, perhaps? And how can we maybe perhaps uh, take some steps to uh, kind of be a hedge uh, against the recession?
2: So, you know, number one, reduce any unnecessary overhead expenses, operating costs, things like that. So you want to be lean, nimble, and operate as lean as you possibly can. Um, You know, at the same time, take advantage of any, uh, you know, expansion opportunities that you have. So I'm not saying contracting your expansion of your market like we just talked about. Once Mm -hmm. you understand what business you're really in, who your clients really are, go after that and expand exponentially. So if you think of an accordion theory, okay, what you want to do is you want to expand up top. You want to expand your revenues while your expenses contract exponentially quicker. Okay. The other way is when the economy is contracting, you want to, you know, as your income is reducing, you want to exponentially reduce your expenses,
3: you Mm -hmm. know,
2: much faster than your income. So think about that accordion, depending on what the market's doing. But right now it's time to be lean, efficient. Don't take on any extra overhead that you don't need to. That's not going to produce the 100% of the 20% and um, build your cash. So cash is king. The dollar is the reserve currency of the world. Even with what the Fed is doing, it's hard to believe and hard to understand. And what the Treasury is doing, they're really controlling the capital market. Sure. That's really what they're doing. Mm-hmm. That's who you're competing with if you were, if you're in that world. Um, you want to build the dollar and and reserve, you know, get some cash reserves built up because you're going to be able to take advantage of opportunities and you're going to be able to sustain and weather any kind of a you know long long-term outlook of a downturn. Now. With what we've seen with the Fed and the Treasury, where we're at in the economy, assuming we get past the virus, we get a vaccine and it's all behind us, which I don't even know when that is and, and what that looks like. But let's assume we do end of this year, going into next year, we're, we're going to be 18 to 24 months before you, any, you see any real significant economic recovery. Because like you said, there are a lot of businesses that have closed. There are a lot more that are going to close. They're not going to be able to just reopen. Um, you know, so there's going to be some contraction and some damage there, but that's only you am going to say only. I mean, that's only 20, 25 percent of the of the economy, right? The other 80 percent, 75 percent is still firing. It's
3: mm-hmm. still
2: doing well right now. We're still producing probably 75 percent of GDP versus where we were before. Now that's only because of what the Fed and Treasury have done. If sure. they haven't done what they did, who knows where we'd be right now? Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think we're going to be fine, we're going to do fine. The question is, what's the results and the impact of what the Fed and the Treasury have done? Uh, what is that going to look like? And how many companies are really going to be out of business over the long term moving forward? And how long does it take to get everybody back to work? Mm-hmm. You know, Probably 25, 30% of the workforce is out of work right now. Um, how are we gonna be able to get all them back to work and get back to that you know, single digit unemployment?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no that's great and sometimes you know greg uh, i feel like we are in that um, early spring or early summer type of analogy that you know once you have a frozen river and the ice up top is kind of frozen so you have a sheet of ice on top of your river and that's quickly melting and that's sometimes how i feel with the stimulus and where we are at i mean uh, as you know, that you know, a lot of businesses have obviously closed. You have courts and a lot of institutions that are closed, and the stimulus is probably going to run out now. In let's say end of July at this point, point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel that it's almost analogous to that sheet of ice. that once all of this ends and the courts open up and we start to see the clear effects of what uh, what we are dealing with, I feel that there is definitely a lot of uh, damage that is ahead of us. Maybe the, perhaps the uh, like later part of Q3 and Q4 are going to look a lot more, uh, you know, painful. Would you agree? Yeah,
2: yeah. And you know what's interesting? So we are a global economy. We are interconnected at the hip all across the world economically. Sure.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: what a lot of people aren't talking about and thinking about right now, what's the effects of that? Because we can't, the United States is a big part of the world economy in terms of travel. Sure.
3: We mm-hmm.
2: can't do that right now. We can't go right. to spend money in these other countries. Now, the good news is it's being spent here, you know, in this country to a degree. Um, the other thing that, you know, to your point is people are going to pull back and start building their cash reserves. Like I talked about, start saving more, Mm -hmm. which, you know, when you look at bank deposits and savings accounts, they're at all time highs right now because people are trying to build back what they've had to go through the big tidal wave, the big icebreaker that we've got coming is that ice continues to melt right now at the end of July. So you've Mm -hmm. got two things happening. You've got the uh, moratorium on evictions running out. You've got the, um, bonus unemployment from the federal government running out that $600 surplus. Mm -hmm. That's been a lot of what's been driving and keeping things alive. And it's really interesting. I heard uh, an interview today with a um, pub owner in Europe who said, we were forced to close down by the government. Therefore we should be made whole by the government for every dollar that was lost. (laughs) So what is inflation? What are the results? What's the outlook until that happens? And unless something like that happens, where every citizen has made whole financially for what they've lost during this time, dollar for dollar, you can't have hyperinflation at the consumer level, okay? Where you've got inflation as at the institutional level, Mm -hmm. the asset classes, you know, stocks, Mm -hmm. bonds, gold, oil, all that kind of stuff, bank debt and credit because of the capital markets and what the Fed's doing. So that's where the real inflation has been But all that money is staying amongst a few institutions. It's not hitting the main street. Main street, So I don't don't think we're gonna see a lot of hyperinflation, but what we do have this month is we've got some serious pain coming if the Fed doesn't extend, well, number one, hold off on taxes, because taxes are due in July. So you got, forgot that. Sure. You got taxes (laughs) that are due if you haven't paid them. They're due in July. You've got unemployment running out and you've got the rent moratorium, eviction moratorium nationwide that's expiring. There's a lot of things that are going to happen that are going to cost a lot of people money and create a lot more pain if if the government doesn't, you know, step up and do something.
1: Incredible insight. Thank you, uh, Greg. I appreciate it. Uh, I mean, I feel that, uh, you know, obviously we are coming close to the podcast uh, time now, but uh, a couple of last questions, uh, Greg here. Uh, you prefer new construction than a perhaps a typical value-add multifamily deals. Uh, can you maybe uh, share some of your thoughts on you know why you kind of uh, steer yourself in that direction and why you are a proponent of, of a lot lot more like you know development and new construction?
2: Yeah. So uh, there's bigger margins in development. So generally you're gonna make a 30 to 40, sometimes 50% margin in development. Now value add, you've been able to hit some good margins over the last four or five years, but they're gone now. So that's a Mm -hmm. whole different game in value add, unless you find a really distressed uh, situation, which then that's kind of in my wheelhouse, more opportunistic, heavy distress. Um, The typical value add game has changed. It's no longer what it used to be, where you could buy something three or four years ago, And increase, you know, the rents and increase the value 20 or 30 percent over three or four years. Now it's more of a portfolio play, so it's a different, different animal, different game. Um, But ground up development, it's always worth more. There's Mm -hmm. always more demand for newer product. Uh, People, you know, new always rents for more, always sells for more. It's always worth more, and it's always more competitive in the marketplace. People love new places to live. Um, You know and it's clean, it's easy, you know what you got, you can do it, you know, for me, so development is risky, but to me, it's not It's what I've always done. So I understand it. I know mm-hmm. what it costs, I know what it takes, and I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So I enjoy it, I like it. And right now, it's, it's especially great right now, because inventory levels are down all across the country, residential, single family residential, as well as commercial, um, multifamily assets, you know, there's not a whole lot of stuff out there on the market. There's more land available to develop. Um, you know, so, uh, and cap rates are compressed on existing products. So it's a very attractive time. And if you know what you're doing in development, you can pivot through every market cycle. I was developing in 2009, uh, when the markets, you know, were collapsing and things were coming to an end in the real estate market, I was still making money in developing. You just have to shift and you have to chase the market down and in a different direction than you do when it's on the rise. Mm-hmm. Right now it's all about inventory. It's all about supply and demand.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So you want to go where the demand is and fill the holes mm-hmm. and fill the gaps. Mm -hmm. and then be ready for that. And then also know what's coming in the pipeline. You know, uh, I was getting ready to do some hotels before all this hit and I had four sites and I had four hotels, $32 million, 132 key, um, flagged hotels in four different markets, uh, in Virginia. And the construction costs came in, they were just so high. I couldn't make the numbers work. So I tabled them. Mm -hmm. If I would have gone through with those, I'd been bringing four brand new hotels online this fall. So Mm
3: -hmm.
2: very serendipitous, right. That, uh, that, that didn't happen, that we pulled the plug on those projects. But at some point, we'll revisit those. But mm-hmm. so right now, there's a ton of hotels coming online, there's a bunch that have been development. And that segment of the market is going to take a while to come back, you know, once we get to the other side
1: of what's going on. Sure, sure. I mean, definitely the hospitality and the travel is so deeply affected. And as you pointed out, it is going to be a while before we get there and perhaps start uh, looking into the new construction as well. So thank you for coming on, uh, Greg. Uh, One last question. Uh, As experienced as you are, Greg. Uh, what are some of the best pieces of advice that you have received and you kind of follow on a, uh, perhaps a daily basis to keep yourself disciplined and charge ahead uh, daily in your business?
2: You know, number one, educate yourself. So what I've done, I didn't go to college, you know, I've, I've educated myself, i poured into myself. So I spend a lot of time on personal professional development every single day, mm-hmm. you know, physically, spiritually, mentally, you know, all of it. I pour Mm -hmm. into myself constantly, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of like Warren Buffett, right? He spends, you know, six, eight hours a day reading, you know, I spend every extra minute I have developing myself, pouring into myself and and doing that. That's number one. Number two, thinking big, thinking like I have no Mm limits. So, you know, I never, I never have the imposter syndrome. I never have, you know, those moments of doubts where I wake up and I feel like I can't do something. I've always felt like because of that, that I can do anything. Mm-hmm. And that every opportunity is available if I have the right information at the right time, take the appropriate uh, action, and apply that information to the right vehicle, meaning business model.
3: Mm-hmm. Go from mm-hmm.
2: there. So I do really feel like within my abilities that I have no limits. I'm not going to go play you know quarterback for the New England Patriots and take Tom Brady's old <laughs> job, right? So right. I'm realistic in what I'm what I'm saying. Within my abilities, resources, and all that, I don't have any limits. You know, I can go out and do whatever it is that I want to go out and do. So, you know, that, that's really it. I'd say for people, educate yourself, pour into self, continue to develop yourself personally, professionally, uh, in every way that you possibly can. For me, it's books, co- you know, seminars, courses, mentorship, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, and just, you know, don't be afraid to take big actions, to think big and do big things because you're, you're only here a short time. And, uh, you know, anything can happen as, we, as we've all seen. So, you know, there's no better time to do anything than right now.
1: Incredible. Thank you for your, all your insights, Greg. It's been a great podcast with a lot of great information and a lot of high-level things that if folks understand and implement some of those uh, advice uh, uh, that you shared, uh, it will do a lot of good for them. So thank you for coming on. Uh, please yeah. share with our listeners how they can find you and learn more about your company.
2: Yeah, gregdickerson.com. So uh, all the information is on there. I have a YouTube channel podcast where I share a lot, of, uh, a lot of the information. It's all just short little tidbits of, of, you know, advice and information and things. And, you know, no fluff, no sales, just boom. Here's how you do this. Here's how you do that. So gregdickerson.com.
1: Great. Thanks a lot. It's a pleasure. And I will look forward to another podcast with you with, where we can talk a little bit more about different elements of the business and your advice. Thank you for coming on.
2: Yeah. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed
0: it. Thanks for listening to premium cashflow, real estate investing podcast. Please join us at premium cashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.